book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 35. You know, recently we had one of our amazing people in our church family do a course called Midlife Spirituality. And some of you took advantage of that. And I want to just say that 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 was an effort to help prepare people for something in the adult life cycle called midlife crisis. Now, I don't know if you realize this, but all of us, as we journey through this life, there is a cycle, and we all deal with different things at different times, and it's all part of how God designed us as human beings. Now, the midlife crisis, what is really happening there is a great question, and I'll try to briefly summarize it. First of all, all of us in this room have a, have a, a dream, a God-given dream. We have something inside of us that says, this is what I think God is trying to do in our lives. And so often when we get about halfway through life, we begin to realize, you know, either I've hit the dream, I've realized it, and many people become very disillusioned at that moment because what they realize is, is that it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And so disillusionment sets in, and many times this is a major struggle, and so people have to recalibrate and get a a vision in their heart that God is really trying to create within them. But a lot of times in our youthful excitement and exuberance, we don't quite hear God correctly. It's like Moses, you know, God spoke into his life. I believe he was called to be a leader, but how he went about it earlier was not the way God had intended. And so he ended up killing someone and fled into the desert. Remember that? And then later on, God brought him back. But, you know, for most people, they don't even realize their dreams. And so a lot of people are disappointed with themselves and they're frustrated and some people are disappointed with God and they're wondering, you know, why didn't life turn out the way I thought it should? You know, I had this kind of a a, a human dream. And for most people, they never realize their dream. And so what has to happen when you get to midlife is you start recalibrating and realize what is it that God is really calling me to do? What is it that God is really trying to get me to understand about myself and about what he wants in my life? And so it was during my own midlife hour that God directed me to one of the most challenging and most difficult experiences in my personal life and in my ministry. And I I simply describe it as my Seattle experience. And I think so often the psalmist, because it's written in poetic languages and it has a, a sense that poetry is filled with words with powerful meanings And many of the Psalms, there's no really understanding of when they took place. And so they sort of transcend a setting so that you and I can embrace those experiences for ourselves. I think Psalm 66 kind of summarizes, in my mind, a little bit of my Seattle experience. And I think as I read it, it's going to begin to summarize many of your experiences that are sitting in the room here today. And if not, you will probably have a similar experience down the road. So I just want you to be aware of that. And it goes something like this. In Psalm 66, it says, For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. Already that doesn't sound fun. How many know, I don't really like tests. Anybody like tests? No, it's a challenge, right? But, you know, tests are there to reveal how we're doing. And so it goes on to say, you brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. Who's the one that did this? Thank you. God did this. You know, a lot of times we want to attribute the enemy to some of this stuff. But in reality, God's the one that is bringing his people to this. And then it says, you let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Now, I did not go to a physical prison. But I was put in a place where I felt there was no freedom. And some of you in this room have felt that. 
in your life where you have felt a captive. You had nowhere to go. You were like David. You said, oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would flee away. I would run from my present circumstances, but there's nowhere to run to. It seems like God has boxed me in. God has boxed you in, and so you're stuck. And sometimes it's very disheartening and demoralizing to be stuck hoping for something other than what you're experiencing. I think I'm talking to some of you today. You're there, and you're wondering how to get beyond this situation. In that moment, I went through a number of experiences. Betrayal, distrust, hurt, anger, brokenness, despair, emptiness, suffering, criticism, loss of self-confidence, loss of passion, loss of energy. It truly could be described as the low point in my life, and yet in that darkest hour, God birthed the church, a child, a new understanding of who he is, a renewed understanding of what he wanted for me, and a deeper understanding of the true nature of ministry. It was out of that crucible of testing, that time of refining, that moment in my own wilderness where men were riding over my head, figuratively. And we as a family went through fire and then felt like we were overwhelmed and were drowning. God brought us to a new place in our soul. I know that I came out of my wilderness experience a worshiper, a servant stripped bare, but with a deeper confidence in God and a renewed sense of mission. It's interesting that one of the major scenes of the Bible that's filled with significance is the wilderness. You know, from the very beginning of Scripture, we find man, he's in a garden. And the garden's a beautiful place, isn't it? It's a place of fruitfulness. It's a place that speaks of blessing. It's a place where God walks with man. It's a place of spiritual intimacy. But we know from reading Genesis 3 that man had sinned and he was cast out of the garden. He ends up in a world that's been affected by sin. And so we have this other picture in the Bible, this wilderness picture that continually shows up over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, most of the prophets, you'll find them in a wilderness. Most of the people that God significantly uses, he brings into a wilderness. And so wildernesses are not only of something of our own making. In other words, because I have failed God and I'm cast from the garden and now I'm in a wilderness. But there are times in our lives that God's spirit leads us into the wilderness. You go, how do you know that, Pastor? Because you know, Jesus, who was sinless, was led of the spirit of God into the wilderness. So it's not just something I do to get myself into this bad situation. Sometimes God brings me into the wilderness so that God can test my life. God can refine my life. God can change my life. God can bring me to a place of enlargement, a place of abundance, as we read in the Psalms. Now, Isaiah chapter 35, he uses language that is actually poetic. And I believe when we look at a poetic piece of scripture, we cannot look at it the same way as we do with other figures of speech in the Bible, other genre like narrative or proverb or parable. We're looking at a poetic section. And so how many know when you're reading poetry, when you sit down and you know it's poetry, you're not going to read it the same way as you're going to read a textbook. How many know that's true? 
you're going to look at that totally differently. And you're going to understand that the words there are filled with powerful emotional meaning. And many times those meanings motivate us and stimulate us and inspire us in a way that's totally different than if it was all explained to us. You know, in other words, poetry has a way of packing a big punch in a short order of words. Isn't that the truth? It can really do that to us. Some of you really like poetry. I have to admit, I'm, I'm trying to get to really like poetry. But, you know, Hebrew language is filled with poetry. And so I'm trying to readjust my thinking. So Isaiah begins this poetic language by talking about a transformation that is about to transpire. He's going to talk about a sense of hopelessness and despair that's going to be replaced by joy and gladness. How many know and how many would be happy to hear that, you know, my time of difficulty, my time of despair, my time of hopelessness, my time of, you know, sorrow and tears is going to come to an end and is going to be replaced by joy and gladness. Hey, I'm up for that. And this is the text we're going to look at today. It's an oracle of salvation. It's an oracle of hope. It's an oracle, uh, a word from the mouth of God through his prophet to tell the nation of Israel that though they had sinned against God, they had been led into a captivity, they had been brought into a wilderness, God was going to do something powerful in their wilderness. Let's pick up the story here, Isaiah 35, verse 1. It says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, that's a flower, by the way, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. Now we have a little personification. You know, flowers are, you know, shouting. You know, that's, that's human beings that do that. But you can already get an idea this is poetry. How many, there's clues here, this is poetry. You know, I have to interpret a little differently. It says, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. And so in Isaiah 35, we literally find three... Uh, three elements in our wilderness experiences that I want to focus in on today. And the first one is simply a sense of the demoralization that happens when we're in a wilderness experience. You know what happens in a wilderness? You get stripped. You get refined. It's demoralizing. It's painful. It hurts. You know, the wilderness is designed to strip you and I of everything we put our trust in apart from God. We don't even realize that a lot of times we're trusting in all kinds of stuff. We trust in our ability, our health, our strength, other people, you know, our economic system. But all of a sudden we go into a wilderness, we're stripped of all of that, and we're forced to make a decision. Will we trust God? You know, it's a time of immense spiritual warfare. The issue is one of where we have to address where we are gaining our sense of identity. You know, let's face it, guys. If you lose your job, that's a huge hit because a lot of times we identify with what we do. Right, guys? It's true. And all of a sudden, when you lose that, you go, who am I? And it's interesting that in the wilderness, the Spirit of God brought Jesus, and it says both in Matthew and Luke, and both both of them are found, the stories are found in chapter 4, the, the tempter comes to Jesus and says, if you are the son of God, interesting, what's he dealing with? Identity. Identity, if you're the son of God. It's interesting that chapter 3 brings out the father had already spoken at baptism and had said, you are the son of God. 
This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Pastor Reich last week brought out the idea and very ably that before Jesus had done anything in the area of ministry, the Father was already affirming him. And I want to just say something to all of us as believers. You and I don't need to do anything to receive our Father's love, affirmation, and approval. See, we're not earning love. It's already freely given. It's out of love that we serve. It's out of love. We're not performing for God. We don't need to perform for God. He already loves you. God cannot love you one ounce more than he already does right now. But you're going to see in a moment what God is really trying to do in our lives. And I'm excited about it. And you're going to, we'll discover it as we come to the close of the service. But here we see not only is it a battle about our sense of identity, but it's also a battle about worship. It's a battle about trust. It's, you know, it's interesting. When Moses went to Pharaoh, he said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they might worship me. See, let them go where? Into the wilderness that they might worship me. You see, the wilderness is a call to worship. It's during the wilderness experiences that strip us and weaken our self-confidence and unhealthy reliance upon ourselves and other people and ultimately upon the things of this world. It does. It strips all that away from us. And then we're down to nothing. And then the question is, where are you going to put your trust now? And the answer should be, God, my trust is only in you. See, it's, it's a call to worship. Do you know that Israel became a people in the wilderness? It was in the wilderness that they came from Mount Horab and God revealed himself to a nation and God laid down his covenant with his people in the wilderness. So the wilderness is a very important element in our lives. And so often as Christians, when we get to the wilderness, we see that as a bad thing, that somehow God is mad at me, and I'm not you know, somehow making it or cutting it with God. And I'm going to tell you, drop that picture. That's not biblical. Yes, it could be that I have alienated myself from God, I've walked away from God, and I've allowed myself to get into a wilderness you know, where I am alienated from God. And all of a sudden, the wilderness is basically, you know, dealing with me about where am I putting my trust. But as I've already pointed out, you can be doing everything right, and God decides to lead you into a wilderness. Because I believe God wants to do something very profound in that wilderness experiences of our lives. Now, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, that the wilderness experience often produces a sense of spiritual, emotional feebleness, fear, anxiety, and difficulty. Now look at verses 3 and 4 here of Isaiah chapter 35. This is what God wants to say to the people who are struggling. He says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way, say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. I like that. So I, I just kind of sat down and thought about those words. Where were they at? First of all, they had feeble hands. Their knees were unsteady. In other words, they were faltering. They, 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 their, their walk with God was a struggle. They were struggling. And some of you might be in a wilderness right now, and you're really struggling in your faith, and you're really struggling with your walk with God. 
Okay? And then it goes on to say here um, in this text, it says, be strong. How many know a lot of times we feel like, oh, I just want to give up. I just feel so weak. I just, I just can't go on anymore. Do you know what one of the lowest points at another time in my life, and I was really struggling, and God gave me a word. I was reading the scriptures. It says, be strong in the Lord. And I go, God, are you mocking me? I feel weak. And God says, you're telling me to be strong. And then I felt the Holy Spirit kind of quicken this idea in my mind. It's not be strong in yourself. It's be strong in the Lord. You may feel weak, but he's always strong. And what God is trying to do is challenge us to find our strength not in ourselves, not in our abilities, not even in our spirituality. He's trying to get us to trust in him, that my hope and my trust is in you, O God. I'm going to be strong in you. I'm going to put my faith in you. I'm going to put my confidence in you. That's what he's talking about. And then he says to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. You know, it's so often I read in the scriptures, God says, don't be afraid. And a lot of times we make decisions in life based out of fear. We're afraid things aren't going to work out. We're afraid that somehow God's going to let us down. We're, we're, we're afraid that, you know, if I don't do my part, God's not going to do his part. I want you to know God's more faithful than you and I. You know, sometimes we've messed up. God says, I'm going to, I'm going to cover your back anyways, kid. Hey. You know, so why do we walk with so much fear? I think we need to have a greater confidence that God's going to take care of us. You know, he says, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll always be with you. I'm here for you. You know, when I think about how much I love my own children, and then I think about where does that come from? It comes from God. And I say to myself, I would do anything for my kids. And I'm thinking, where do I get that idea from? From God. What is he saying to me? Paul, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for my kids. I'll even lay down my life for my kids. And you know, he did do that. He laid down his life for us. We need to have a confidence that a God who loves us so deeply, he's willing to lay down his life for us and did lay down his life for us. It says, if God loved us while we were yet sinners, how much more does he love us now? Man, you know, if we had an, probably the greatest awakening we all need is to understand how much God deeply loves us and not live in a fearful state. We should hear that. He goes on to say, because your God will come. Your God will come. And I want you to know when God comes, wildernesses are changed. That's the beauty. Now, here in this passage, Isaiah is giving a word to a discouraged, defeated group of people who had sinned against God, who had compromised themselves, who were now in Babylonian exile, and now were probably heading back to the land of promise, and they were disheartened. And Isaiah is foretelling of all of these events and saying, guess what? God's going to show up and it's going to work out. You're going to be able to come back. Because Isaiah had told him earlier, you're going to get disciplined by God and you're going to be exiled. But don't sweat it. You're going to come back out of your wilderness. And I believe the wilderness experience is designed to bring us back to God. That's what it's done. As a matter of fact, in the book of uh, Hosea, let me go back here. I, I, I messed up my notes a little bit. Uh, right here. It says, Hosea says, Therefore I am now going to allure her, speaking of the nation. I will lead her into the desert or the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
The wilderness is God's place where he courts his people. But we don't see it that way. We think, oh, God's not being nice to me. No, this is his courting ground, the wilderness. I go, I don't like this place. God goes, yeah, but I've removed all those distractions. How many know we're highly distracted? And in North America, we're even more highly distracted than most people, right? God says, I'll just take you out of your situation and I'll take, strip everything out of your life and then I can, you know, talk to you in a loving way. That's what he says. Therefore, I will give her back her vineyards after that has happened and I will make the valley of Accor. Does anybody know? Now, this is an allusion to something that happened historically in the, Israel's history. This is when Achan took the garments and the gold from the city of Jericho. And God says, no, that city all belongs to me. No one take anything. And he took something. And then he and his family were, were literally put to death. They brought death they were, and they died as a result of it. It says, but he says, the door that made the valley of Accor, what? A door of hope. The place of judgment now becomes a place of hope. Now this is really strange to me. Why would a place of judgment become a place of hope? Can you think of one other place in the Bible as a place of judgment that becomes a door of hope? Immediately it comes to my mind. The cross of Jesus Christ was a place of judgment where God judged humanity's sins. Now that becomes a door of hope. And now God starts restoring things. There she will sing as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. In other words, God says, I'm going to restore to you the joy you felt when you became a brand new Christian. How many remember, like some of you, you probably grew up in the church, you don't remember this as much, but I, I was converted to Christianity a little later on. And so for me, when I became a Christian, all of a sudden it was like, whoa, there's a whole new world out here. I didn't even know existed, you know. The sky was bluer, the grass was greener, you know. I just went, you know, I was so self-focused and self-pity that I didn't realize there was a world outside of myself. And when I put Jesus in the middle and I moved out, something began to happen. Began to see the world as a bigger place and far more happy and far more joyous, filled with joy. Amen? The Bible says it. You know, we come to Christ, we have a joy that fills our hearts. But then we go into a wilderness and we go, oh God, where are you? What did I do wrong? You know, why are you doing this to me? Why are you disciplining me? He said, we go on to all these antics. You know, God goes, no, I'm just going to strip you of a lot of stuff that you've put false hope in. I'm going to teach you how to really worship. I'm going to teach you how to really trust me. That's what he's talking about here. Let me go back up here. Sorry I did this. You know, when I'm working on these sermons, I work on it all week long. And this morning I made changes and I didn't change it in my PowerPoint. That's okay. You know, often, some scholars believe that the, the point that Isaiah is speaking here is an area called the Judean Rift, the wilderness area. Now, if you've ever been to Israel, it's really interesting. He's going to allude to two different parts of the country right now. The southern part, south of Jerusalem, as you head down to the Dead Sea, it's all a wilderness. It's a desert. It's barren. There's nothing there. And that's where Edom lay. And Edom was a nation that actually... Uh, abused Judah in her time of exile. And so Obadiah, you guys are all familiar with the prophet Obadiah, right? You guys read him every other week? 
No, I'm just teasing you. I know we don't do that. There's only one little chapter there anyways. But let me, let me give you a little sense of what's going on here. In chapter 35 and chapter 34 of Isaiah go together. There's a parallelism that's happening between the two chapters. In chapter 34, you're going to read of the nations of the world, and then he goes into Edom, which represents all the nations of the world, who were highly inhabited and seemingly doing well. All of a sudden, everything they have is going to become a wilderness. And then you have the flip side, chapter 35, where you have the nation of Judah in a wilderness, and their wilderness becomes transformed, okay? And so he goes on here to talk about this experience in Obadiah, because Edom, what they had done was take advantage of Judah at a low point in her history. The vision of Obadiah, this is what the sovereign Lord says about Edom. See, I will make you small among the nations. You will be utterly despised because of the violence against your brother Jacob. That's another name for Judah. You will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his, that's Judah's wealth, and and foreigners entered his gate and cast lots of Jerusalem, and you were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. I think he's trying to get at the idea. It was a day of their disaster. You get that repetition going on here? You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. My, so what is he basically saying here? He's saying simply this. You guys took advantage of people when they were down. By the way, do you know God really gets, he's a very just God, and he gets very upset when we take advantage of people when they're at a low point in their life. He gets upset about that. And what goes around comes around. Look out. So he's upset with Edom because of what they did to Judah. Even though God was using Babylon and these nations to discipline his people, let me tell you something. God can use people to discipline you, but if they're not right with God, they're going to get disciplined in turn. And that's what you read throughout the scriptures. Then in chapter 34, it says, My sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. See, it descends in judgment on Edom, the people I have totally destroyed. And so we learn a little principle here. Discipline always comes before joy. You know, weeping may endure for the night, but what happens? Joy comes in the morning. See, God's going to do things in our lives. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews chapter 12 talks about God disciplining his children. And he says, at the time, it doesn't seem joyful. It doesn't seem happy. It's not. How many like to be, you know, disciplined? Honestly, you really like being tested. You really like being disciplined. Nobody raises their hand. But how many like the results of what comes out of that, that it straightens us out and we get on the right path and we start doing the right thing and our lives get turned around? How many like the fruit of discipline? Yeah, I'm for that. But I don't like being disciplined, but I like the fruit of it. And like we all do. That's true in our lives. Before there's joy, there's usually mourning over sin. Judah's sins are addressed in her exile. And before she's brought back to the land of promise, she realizes now she's failed God. And in that restoration under the leadership of Ezra and Nehemiah, when she's brought back, we get the sense of confession of sin and genuine repentance. And then we see tremendous revival and joy. I love that part. But let me move on to the second element regarding the wilderness. And it's simply the transformation that happens when God comes. The powerful imagery that is used here the parallelism 
desert, parched land, wilderness, they're all speaking about the devastation that has happened to God's people. And then, and I think in our lives, we all have those moments, losses, where life loses its luster, where we're in a difficult condition. What is even more distressing is that there's a sense that God has abandoned us and we get this idea of the silence or the hiddenness of God. How many have ever had times in your life where you go, it's the driest time ever, I don't feel like God's talking to me anymore, I read my Bible, I get nothing out of it. Where is God? I come to church, I feel like you know, I'm dead in my soul, I'm barren, I'm dry as a bone. Anybody relate to this? That's a wilderness, folks. You're in the desert. But don't despair. There's a purpose for all of this. This isn't God you know, out here to make you miserable. You know, Look, in Hosea, it says this, when they go with their flocks and herds to seek the Lord, they will not find him. He has withdrawn himself from them. Now, I'm gonna say this. God never leaves us, but there are moments he's not saying too much to us. There's a moment we may feel abandoned. There's a moment when we may feel there's a distance between ourselves and God. Do you know what that is for? That is so that you will continue to seek God. It's designed for you to get past all of that. It's designed for you to get serious. Okay? I'm serious about this, getting past all of that. It's to awaken to us our need for God alone, stripped of all the things that keep us from really serving God. We realize what our soul truly has been longing for, God himself. And then God comes to us in our wilderness, and he reveals himself to us there. And then the wilderness becomes beautiful. All of a sudden we go, I love this. I love the fact that God took everything away. I love the fact that I went through this hardship. I love the fact that I had to go through this experience and now I've been emptied of all this other stuff and I realized they were all keeping me from really knowing and serving God the way I needed to. See, Isaiah says it this way, the desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. You know, the glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. Now, if you go to northern Israel today, This is so interesting. In the south, wilderness. In the north, the valley of Sharon. You know, that's what the breadbasket of Israel is. That's where everything is growing. It's lush, it's green. You go up even further north. You go up to a place called Caesarea Philippi, the Banyas. Some of you that have been with me, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where the water, the headwaters of the Jordan is starting, up near Lebanon, up near where the water flows. It's green, it's lush, it's fertile. How many are getting a picture? God is saying, you know what? This is what you're experiencing the Judean wilderness, the barrenness, the difficulty. But I'm gonna turn that whole wilderness and I'm gonna make it fruitful. I'm gonna make it like a garden. Ooh, I love that. See what happens here in verse five. Look what the results happen when God starts showing up on the scene. It says, then the eyes of the blind will be open, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, then the lame will leap like a deer. How about Acts chapter three? How about that guy leaping like a deer, right? He was lame. This is a picture, see, a lot of people take these texts from the Old Testament and go, this is what it meant, and they move it to the New Testament. Just pointing that out. It says, and the mute tongue shall shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness, streams in the desert. Do you know in those desert places, when they have a flash flood, it's amazing how that water rushes in. And God says, I'm gonna bring water into the wilderness like a flash flood. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay. How many know what a jackal is? It's a desert animal. He says, now he says, in the haunts where jackals once lay, grass, reeds, and papyrus will grow. How many, when the moment you start thinking of grass, reeds, and papyrus, what are you thinking? Well, I'm thinking water. 
I'm thinking these things are plants that are growing in water. This is speaking of life. It's speaking of this desert being transformed. And I want to just say this. When God comes to my wildernesses, my experience is transformed. Hallelujah. And all of a sudden, what was once a barren place now becomes a garden again. And in the garden, what happens there? That's where man had intimacy with God. That's where fruitfulness happens. And I go, yes. Wow. It's worth it, God. There's a new depth in my relationship with Almighty God. Interestingly, God had earlier spoken to Isaiah about uh, what was going to happen. He says, I want you to go to these people and talk to them. And they're going to hear, be ever hearing but never understanding. They're going to be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the hearts of these people callous. Their ears will be dull. They'll be closed. Their, I mean, their eyes will be closed. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. But now in chapter 35, after the discipline, what's happening? The ears they couldn't hear, they're hearing. Do you know when we're not hearing what God is saying, we're in a wilderness. But God says, when I show up on the scene, you're going to hear again. You see, when I come on the scene, you're going to see again. You're going to begin to understand. You're going to start perceiving what I'm doing. When I come into the situation, your hearts are going to change. You're no longer going to be hard-hearted and callous. You're going to be tender-hearted and sensitive and sympathetic. How many can say, after my wilderness experience, I have become more empathetic, more understanding, more compassionate towards other people? Isn't that true? Absolutely. Now, I know that this is speaking spiritually, but you know what? The New Testament actually takes it and says this is even going to happen physically. Remember John the Baptist? He was struggling. He was in a wilderness. He was in prison. He had lived his whole life to preach about the coming Messiah. And this is what John says in Matthew 11. He says, when John heard in prison that Christ was doing what he was doing, he sent his disciples to say, are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? How many know this was an hour of doubt, an hour of despair for John? It was a dark hour of the soul. It was a wilderness. Wasn't John the one that pointed out that Jesus was the Messiah? But now at the end of his life, he's in doubt. He's in a wilderness. He's despairing. And so what does Jesus say to him? It says, Jesus said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. And now he quotes Isaiah. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. He's quoting partly from this chapter, chapter 35. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, man of the wilderness. Listen, man who's in the wilderness. Listen to what I'm telling you. God has come. Because when God comes, he changes the wilderness. When God comes, the deaf hear. When God comes, the sight is given. When God comes, the heart is changed. Not only physically, but also spiritually, he's talking about here. Oh, I love that. But let me just move on to the third point. I know what time it is. <laughs> this, is this is really exciting to me. Why the wilderness? The final element we discovered about the wilderness experience is that holiness is being developed. You know, I mentioned that word, and immediately it's almost a negative term. You, you go talk to the average person. You mention the word holy, people start snickering, mocking. If you mention holiness to most Christians today, they go, oh, that person thinks they're holy. It's become a negative term in many people's mind, is it not? I want to dispel that for you. Because I don't think most people today understand what holiness is. 
And that's why we have the wrong understanding. What had caused Israel, Judah, to go into exile? She had defiled herself by becoming like all the other nations. She had worshipped their gods and had lost her what? She had lost her distinctiveness. She had lost her identity. God, when he called Israel, said, I want to make you unlike any other peoples. I want to make you distinctly different. I'm going to give you even dietary laws. I'm going to say there's some things that are clean, some things that are unclean. See the idea of clean and unclean? It's all related to this. You're going, where are you coming up with this stuff, Pastor? Let's go verse 8. It says here, and a highway will be there, and it will be called the way of what? Of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, and it will be for those who walk in that way. Wicked fools will not go on about on it. No lion will be there. There will not be any ferocious beast get up on it. There will not be found there. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there. You know, this is a place of safety. How many say, I like a place of safety? Sure we do. God says, if you're walking in the way of holiness, it's a safe place. Number, and then it goes on to say, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. Return from their exile, see? And they will enter Zion with singing, and everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. How many would say, I'd love to be overtaken by gladness and joy? Wouldn't that be awesome? You know, Monday morning you get up and go, oh man, I just got overtaken today by gladness and joy. <laughs> I can handle a little of that. Anybody want to sign up for being overtaken by gladness and joy? Amen, I love that. And then it goes on, it says, gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Bye-bye, sorrow. (laughs) Bye-bye, tears. Anybody want to sign up for this last verse? Oh, I love this passage. Beautiful. Do you know, what does it mean to be holy? I'm glad you asked that question. I could preach a, a whole series of sermons on this. And as a matter of fact, if you don't think this is an important topic, I just did a little perusal through the Bible. 850 plus references to holiness. Wow. Our God is a holy God. As a matter of fact, you know, because God has come to us, well, first of all, the highway of holiness speaks of removing the impediments or the the things that are keeping us from God. Do you realize that sin keeps us from God? Because God has come to us, we are now able to come to him. He has prepared a new and a living way into his presence. Matter of fact, Hebrews tells us this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our body washed with pure water. The highway is called the way of holiness. You know, in both covenants, God's big on holiness. Peter says this, just as he called you as holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy. Because I'm holy. And where does he get this from? Well, Leviticus. The Lord God said, consecrate yourself. In other words, set yourself apart. Give yourself totally to God and be holy because I'm holy. Do not make yourself unclean. So holiness simply means to be set apart for God's use. To be distinctly God's. And how many get an idea when you read through, and I'm gonna spend time, I might even preach a whole sermon on this because it's so exciting, but 
In the Old Testament, think about it. They had all of these things that were designated as holy. They had a holy priesthood. They were to be a holy nation (laughs) set apart for God. They were going to be distinct. They had dietary laws, what was clean, what was unclean. Everything about the Jewish people was to show that they were different than everybody else. How many get that impression? How many know that God expects you and I to be different? But you know what? In the New Testament, what happens is they have a wrong understanding of holiness. And I think a lot of Christians have developed that wrong understanding of holiness. We've become just like the Pharisees when it comes to holiness. It's about do's and don'ts. Can I tell you in the New Testament what holiness really is? You're going to love this. Pastor Reich mentioned it the other day, that we, ha- we live distinctly different lives than the people around us. We have a different value system. First of all, we, have, we believe in sexual purity. Right there, that already makes us distinctly different than our culture. Let me move on. You're going to love this. Holiness means that I've learned to love other people. Here's the mark of a true Christian. Jesus says, you shall know they are my disciples because they have love one for another. See, when you and I begin to love people, people go, you're different. When you and I show dignity and value and worth for other people, immediately people go, you're different. Do you know we're in Jamaica? It's cute. Thank you, by the way, church, for, for blessing our family, Rachel, Patty, and I. Thank you. We appreciate that. We served for 25 years. The church gave us money. We went to Jamaica. I got there. Beautiful place. Love Jamaica. Love to go back. I get there, and the porter is taking us up to the room. And this is a big complex. Two towers, about four or five billion uh, buildings worth of lobby. It's just a massive structure. We go from the front desk all the way up to the one tower, up to the 10th floor. The porter takes us there. His name's Owen. I'm chatting with him. I said, hey, Owen, are you a Christian? Hey, man, everyone in Jamaica is a Christian. <laughs> Most church country in the world. But he says, I'm not born again. I said, what do you mean you're not born again? I said, that's where it's at, Owen. How come you're not born again? Well, I got, you know, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready. What are you waiting for? You're missing out on the good life. So we have this conversation. We get up to the 10th floor. He goes in. He goes, you guys can't come in here. It's a disaster zone. They had booked us in a room that somebody else was already booked into. So I go, oh, now what do we do? Let's go back to the front desk, get another room? He says, yeah, man. I said, okay, let's do it. So we go all the way down with our luggage, all the way back, you know. This takes a while because it's like a 10-minute journey back to the front desk, and I got stand in line, and I get another room. Owen, he's patient. We go back up. We're talking about the things of God. We get up to our room. I said, Owen, let me pray with you. Would you let me do that? He says, I would love that. Love for you to pray with me. So we take hands, Rachel, Patty, and I, and we pray for Owen. And pray for God to open his heart and not to be afraid to really, you know, Surrender to Christ and all that. And afterwards, he says, I knew you guys were a Christian. I go, how'd you know we were a Christian? He said, I knew once we took you to the other room the way you responded. Because most people get upset and angry. And he said, they just blast me when that happens. And you guys didn't do that. And I knew you were different. Folks, if we're going to impact people's lives... We have to be holy. And what I mean by holy is not running around being super spiritual. What I mean is that, you know what? We persevere. That's, the book of Hebrews reveals holiness as our perseverance, that we continue to walk humbly with God no matter what comes our way. The book of Corinthians brings out holiness as sexual purity. 
See, and then I bring out this, you know, gospel. John t- takes it as love. Love is an expression of holiness when we love people. Isn't that awesome? You know, we have, a, we have our, our, our statement here. What is our church about? Okay, we're about having what? A passion for God. What's the second part? Compassion for people. If we will do that, we will be holy. I'm summarizing it. So, you know, when you treat people with dignity, you know, oh, I've got to tell you this other story. No, I'll close. We're in Jamaica. We go to the Duns River Falls. Some of you have done this. We climb up the falls. They do a video. I didn't have 40 bucks to buy the video, but I wanted to. So the guy, no problem. I'll come to the hotel gate, and you can meet me, and you can buy the video. Great. So I get over there, and he's not there. I was a few minutes late, so I thought, oh, probably missed him. So I decide to go beyond the gate into Ocho Rios. That's the town there. And I'm in there, and the, I'm by myself, and this is always a signal for drug traffickers, I guess. So I get this guy walking up. Hey, man, I can get you some weed. I said, I don't need it. I've got something greater than that. Really? What do you got? <laughs> I said, I got Jesus. He said, I'm a Pentecostal. I said, well, you're not acting like one. <laughs> so we had a little conversation. <laughs> and so here I am on the streets of Ocho Rios, praying with the drug dealer. <laughs> uh, Hallelujah. Uh, so I come back to the hotel. I said, Rachel, I just got propositioned on some drugs. She goes, Dad, I can't believe you of all people. You know, she doesn't know that she, you know, she's so used to living with me. This is normal for me. She goes, do you ever stop being a pastor? I go, no, that's the way I'm wired. So anyways, I've been praying for Owen and I've been praying for Dave, you know, that he'll get straightened out with God. So, you know what I'm saying? What am I trying to tell us today? Simply this. We're all going to have wildernesses. We're all going to have dry times. We're all going to have barren moments. But the good news is, he's coming. He's coming to you in your wilderness. And he's leading you so that you and I will learn to trust him, worship him, and actually become like him. Let's stand this morning. You know, as I was meditating on this, I had a little thought come to me. And I said to myself, God, you are holy. In other words, you are otherworldly. You are unlike us. But you know what? You're everything I want to be. I want you to know God is everything I want to be. I want to be like him. I want to be unselfish. I want to be loving. I want to be fair. I want to be patient. I want to be kind. How many say, I want to be like him? I want to be holy. And if it takes God leading me through a wilderness to make me holy, that's okay, God. I trust you. Amen? With every head bowed, how many here today say, Pastor, I'm walking through a wilderness experience today. It's been a painful time. It's been dry. I've been questioning. I've been wondering, God, where are you? You've been silent. And he's speaking to you today. He's telling you, I'm there. I'm drawing you to myself and drawing you from all of the distractions and all the things that you've put your trust in other than me.
I'm stripping you from all of those things so that you can become like me. Anyone here this morning say, Pastor, would you pray with me in my wilderness that I would be faithful to God and continue to walk with him and allow him to do his work of changing me? Is that you this morning? Let's pray. Father, thank you for that amazing work of grace that you will take even the wildernesses of our lives. Sometimes we create them, sometimes you lead us into them. But you're bringing about transformation and change in our lives. Lord, give us the strength today to trust you. Help us to find our hope, our confidence in you, Lord. And may you continue to reveal yourself to us so that the things of this world truly begin to fade when we consider how lovely, how beautiful, how amazing you are. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.